The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Video Insiders. I'm Dror Gill, and with me is my co-host, Mark Donegan. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Hello, Dror. I am doing well. I am counting down uh, the days until NAB. So excited. Yeah, the great countdown. We're recording just at last day of March. Everyone is getting ready for NAB, and uh, it looks like it's going to be an awesome show. I mean... A lot of people are coming, a lot of companies, right? Absolutely. That's what I'm hearing and seeing. And, you know, it appears that the appetite is uh, definitely back to connect IRL in real life. There is a real life. In person, see the other people, feel them, smell them, whatever. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. No, it's interesting. The event that I feel sort of set off the feeling, at least from the um, folks in the uh, community that, that I am around, that NAB is really going to be a big show uh, and a good show and a supported show, and you have to be at NAB, was Mile High Video. You know, Mile High Video, there were 200, 250 people. Some flew from as far as Turkey, I believe. There were, you know, many who came over from Europe. And um, it's just the general feeling was, wow, it's great to be back in the same room with colleagues, having professional dialogue, learning, laughing, you know, everything we do as humans when, when we're together. And uh, I, you know, I just got overwhelming feedback from those who were there that, um, you know, we need to do this again. And by the way, NAB is just, you know, a couple months away. And uh, Dror, I guess we should introduce our guest because there's a connection uh, to our guest and Mile High Video. Right. And uh, our guest today is uh, one of the speakers at Mile High Video. And I would very much like to welcome Daniel Silhavi, who is project manager at Fraunhofer Focus. So uh, hi, Daniel, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Hi, Joel. Hi, Mark. Uh, very glad to be here. The Video Insider is actually one of the podcasts I'm listening to myself. Uh, one of the few, I have to say. Um, so really honored to be here uh, at the show. And thanks for having me. Well, we're honored to have you as a guest and as a listener. So <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, definitely. So what did you talk about at Mile High Video? Yeah, so I mainly talked about uh, DashJS development uh, since 2019. I'm the lead developer for DashJS, um, and I think that's also our main topic for today. But uh, maybe to also start off with Mile High, a really great event. Um, it was really nice to see everyone uh, in person again, especially the guys from DashIF. Uh, haven't seen them for some years now and uh, co-located um, with the uh, Video Blog Post Award. So this was, I think, the first of this kind. Yeah, that's another connection because uh, your blog post won third place in the competition, the Mile High Video Best Video Blog Award for 2021. And uh, your post titled Common Pitfalls in MPEG Dash Streaming uh, was third place winner. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, really proud of that also. Thanks again for organizing also uh, to Thierry and uh, Alex Giladi and also congrats to the other winners, uh, Nicola and uh, also will long. Yeah, we had uh, Nicolas in our previous episode. Maybe for a start, you can give us some uh, personal background about uh, yourself, your experience. 
Yeah, so um, I am working for Fraunhofer Focus. Uh, we are located in Berlin. I'm also living in Berlin. I'm working for Fraunhofer, I think, for almost eight years now. So I started off as a student um, for two years and since six years I'm working full time now. And since the beginning, I mainly focused on adaptive bitrate streaming, media streaming and everything related to that. And um, I think since 2019, um, as I mentioned before, I'm doing the Dash.js development. So I'm really focusing on the client side now. And also starting uh, mid-2021, um, I became the development coordinator of the 5G Mac reference tools. So also an activity kind of related to uh, what we are also doing in Dash.js. That's awesome. So uh, Dash.js and 5G Mac are two topics that we're going to uh, cover today. So do you want to give us uh, uh, an overview of MPEG Dash, where it is uh, today, and the Dash.js development? So Dash development really started off in 2012. Um, right now, we are at the fourth edition of the MPEG standard. Um, fifth edition is about to be published. So we really uh, gone a long way here. And um, alongside the MPEG Dash standardization activities, there are some uh, side projects like, for instance, the Dash.js reference client. And maybe first thing to mention here, uh, the Dash.js player is a reference player by the Dash Industry Forum. So the Dash Industry Forum is really like an organization where multiple companies come together, uh, for instance, Qualcomm, Akamai, and they're trying to kind of promote and uh, catalyze the adoption of MPEG Dash. So um, having a specification is obviously one thing, but really like taking the specification, applying it and uh, putting it into a real business, um, that's another thing. And um, that's really what DashIF is trying to do. Um, also, they are writing a, some kind of document that is called the interoperability points, um, where they really try to like connect the dots. And so they are trying to take a specification, maybe add some additional information on top of that, define certain profiles, and really make it easier for, I want to say, us developers to implement a specification and to come up with solutions for, for the different problems that are part of this uh, specification or when you um, actually apply that in, in a real-world scenario. Coming back to Dash.js, um, I mentioned that this is an official reference play of the Dash Industry Forum. And uh, the great thing about Dash.js is that it's available on GitHub. Um, so it's open source. Uh, we also started in 2012, as I mentioned. And next to being maintained by us, uh, by Fraunhofer Focus, it's really a community-driven project. Um, so we have a lot of contributions coming from the community coming from actually people that are using Dash.js in production, but also people that are trying out new stuff. Um, so I see like three different areas for using Dash.js, um, which is on one hand, obviously using it in production. Dash.js is production ready. We have companies like uh, the BBC, for instance, Orange, the Deutsche Telekom. They are using Dash.js as a production grade player. Um, so that's one aspect. Then there's also the, the other aspect, talking about standardization organizations and not only the Dash Industry Forum, but also DVB, HVB TV, CTA Wave. They all use Dash.js to kind of validate their content, validate their profiles, and even contribute back to the player. And I think that that's really great to see. Community-driven, um, people working together, and there are a lot of smart people actually coming together and um, improving the, the player. And uh, when you say it is used for production, is that in a browser or in apps? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, Dash.js is relying on so-called MSE and EME, the media source extensions and the encrypted media extensions. And these are two APIs that are available on browser-based platforms. So that includes desktop browsers, smart TVs, smartphones. 
So whenever there's MSE and EME available, you can use Dash shares in order to playback Dash, um, but also smooth streaming content. So what is the origin story of Dash.js? I, I think it would be very interesting. So maybe you can give us an overview of why was this developed and what's the problem being solved? I think this even goes way beyond my time, actually, 2012. Um, but uh, I know from at least the people who have been there forever or all the time um, that this really started off like a project uh, of a company called Digital Primates. And uh, I want to mention Jeff Tepper here as one of their main developers. Um, so this was more or less like a private project, um, but they were also participating um, or one of the founding members of the, the Dash Industry Forum. So uh, when Dash IF approached them and asked them, is this something that we can use to, uh, let's say, build a reference client on top of, um, they kindly provided that source code. And um, this is kind of how it started as a private GitHub project that then became the official reference client and over time, multiple people have, um, let's say, taken over the lead development role. So there was a time when this was officially maintained by Microsoft. Um, then a developer, uh, Dan Sparatio from uh, Akamai took over. Um, it was maintained by a company called Epic Labs, which I think has been acquired by High Vision. And since 2019, uh, when we took over, um, the project is maintained by Fraunhofer. So there's a kind of a long history. Um, but it really started off like a like a kickoff project of a company and then got adopted by, by the Dash Industry Forum. Now, what about these research papers? Um, there was a Twitch and also some, uh, I, I think, just ABR research. You know, are there any findings that came out of that that have informed the direction or how Dash.js has developed or is developing? So, as I said, we have a lot of contributions coming really from the outside and ABR research is, I think, one of the crucial research items when it comes to ABR streaming, because, you know, the ABR algorithm in a player, that's like a, like a core component. If ABR behaves bad, then you cannot use the player. Um, people want the best quality. Um, so. What we see out in the field, um, I mean, there are various papers uh, dealing with ABR research. And um, from what I understand, a lot of these papers, they need some kind of player platform to validate um, their new ABR algorithms and compare it against, against existing ones. The existing being HLS? Yeah, HLS, for instance, but um, there are also some ABR algorithms already implemented in Dash.js. So there's a throughput-based ABR algorithm, there's a buffer-based ABR algorithm, there's this, um, for instance, Bola algorithm, which is, I think, quite popular. And this is kind of like the baseline. And then when you do ABR research, you're trying to compare, let's say, specific scenarios or compare the player in specific scenarios against what's already implemented in the player. And the great thing about Dash.js is that it's really, it's open source. So you can look into the ABR algorithm, you can check what the player is doing, you can set breakpoints, and then you can test your own ABR algorithm. So you can plug in your own ABR algorithm into the Dash.js player. Exactly. Um, so we offer APIs to um, add new ABR algorithms. You can configure the player in a way that it only uses your own ABR algorithm. It can use a combination of what is already there and what you provided. Um, so that's all configurable. And I think that's what makes Dashjs really a prominent option for, for people to try out new stuff. And uh, I think Marky also mentioned the Twitch challenge. This was part of, I think, a Memsys 2019, 2018, where they were having a, a challenge to uh, optimize ABR algorithms uh, when playing in low latency mode. And um, I think in, in one of your previous podcasts, you talked very 
detailed about ABR streaming, low latency streaming with, with Ali Begin. And actually Ali and uh, his colleagues, um, they contributed to that Twitch challenge. And um, one of the major outcomes of this Twitch challenge were two low latency IBR algorithms called LOL plus and L2A. And they have been merged back into the player. And this is actually a great example for, for contributions coming from the outside. So um, people do stuff, um, they see it works, it improves the current situation. They contribute that back to the player, and then on our side, we can validate that. Um, we see the pull request, um, we might apply minor changes on top of that, and then merge this back to the main code base. Now, the fact that dash JS, I, I assume it, it is written in JavaScript? Correct, yeah. So actually, you can run it in the browser. So if you have a content uh, website, then you can have an implementation of the player embedded in your website. So when somebody browses to your website, the player can, can launch from the server and then start streaming data, right? Exactly. And um, we talked about MSE a bit briefly before. Um, so once you have these two APIs available, um, you don't need anything else. And today's browsers, they offer MSE and EME support. Um, so we moved away from times where you you know you had to install Flash plugin or Silverlight plugin to to do video streaming in your browser, um, but since we have these two APIs and we have projects like DashJS, um, people can very easily create their own content, um, check out DashJS, uh, put it on their server, and just simply start streaming video content on their website. You know this really brings back memories for me from 25 years ago. I was working at IBM Research. Now, 25 years ago, we're talking about 1997. Uh, this is the time of the real player uh, and the Microsoft player. Remember? That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> so real audio, real video. And in order to stream real audio, real video, you needed a plugin into the browser, right? If you didn't have that plugin installed, if you didn't want to install a plugin, if you had security restrictions that you could not install a plugin, you could not enjoy real networks uh, streaming from a website. So what my team did at IBM Research, we developed a framework that was called Jamaica. And that was an acronym for Java Multimedia Component Architecture. So it was like a component architecture, like, you know, Microsoft had uh, Active Movie later and, uh, you know, FFmpeg. In, in this architecture, you had uh, receivers for getting data, you had codecs, you had renderers. Uh, effects and everything was implemented in pure Java. So the great thing about that is that you would go to a website and you want to play a certain content with a certain codec. So the classes just for that format would be downloaded to your uh, browser and then immediately you could stream the content and play it without installing any plugin. Uh, so that was the promise that uh, we fulfilled Uh, in 97 using Java, not JavaScript, it was a Java language. And of course, all browsers at the time supported Java. Uh, and now, you know, 25 years later, it seems like, you know, we're doing the same thing. Now it's called mpeg-player-.js, uh, which can be downloaded from the server and uh, enables you to stream content uh, without installing a plugin. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's really nice to see. Um, I think it's great to see how far we got already. 
I mean, we were talking about MSE and EMEA and it sounds really nice and um, sounds very easy, but there are always edge cases. Um, so when we talk about MSE and EME, um, if you consider like, for instance, smart TVs from 2017, sometimes they have like slightly adjusted versions of the MSE and EME, and then it can get really messy because you need to account for that. Maybe you have like a, a prefixed version of some kind of API. And this is also something we really try to cover in DashJS, talking about DRM implementation, for instance, and the EME. Um, there were different iterations of the of the EME. Uh, so there was a, a prefixed version, a non-promise-based version, and a promise-based version. And what we did in DashJS, we really implemented different protection models to support these different EME versions. So um, whenever you go to, like, let's say, a 2017 Samsung device, you might find a different EME version than compared to uh, what you see in Chrome today. So we really try to make this also backwards compatible. But at some points, um, maybe there are some, some uh, modifications required from people really using the SJS in production to make this work on all of the platforms. With that, uh, Daniel, I wanted to ask, you know, the biggest challenge that we have, well, there's a lot of challenges in, in video streaming, uh, so maybe it's incorrect to say the biggest, but a challenge uh, that every service, every platform, anybody who distributes content to a device has, if they don't own the ecosystem. So, you know, if you're a cable operator, you own the whole thing, right? The network, the qualm segments, the set-top boxes, and there you've got a high CapEx, but, you know, everything can work, right? End-to-end -end, uh, because you control it. The problem with OTT streaming is that all of these players, as you just said, are different. The devices are different. They support slightly different versions of even the same standard. And that just makes it really, really, really hard for someone who's streaming content who says, hey, look, I just want to get as many people as possible to be able to watch my stuff, you know, be able to get my service. Talk to us about how we are progressing from, uh, say, five years ago, six, seven years ago, where fragmentation ran wild. Um, you know, I, I was involved in some projects going back to like 2012, 2013, where even back then, um, some of these large services literally were maintaining 200 or 300 separate SDKs, you know, which you just think of the mind numbing work that's involved in that to make sure that all of these different SDKs work on the different versions of the CE devices that are out there. Has that situation improved? And how does Dash.js contribute, you know, to this situation? Yeah, because once you standardize the player and open source it, then uh, probably solves part of the problem, right? Well, in theory. In theory, yeah. In theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's important, Drawer. <laughs> right, in theory. <laughs> because I'm recalling as we're having this discussion... 2012 and 2013, I moderated panels at streaming media, uh, East and West, actually, that were all about, you remember back then, everybody was building on Flash, but the big promise was HTML5. And the theory was, now we're going to be able to deliver content to any device because it's HTML5. You just use media source extension, MSE, life is good, everything, you know, and, and I can recall a panel with Joe Inzarello, for example, you know, who at the time was, was at MLBAM. And of course, you know, they were already even 10 years ago, very, very important and leading in the video streaming ecosystem 
ecosystem. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, great. Everything in theory works, but let me tell you what actually is happening, you know, was, was the net net. So that's a long lead up to the question. <laughs> How does dash JS help us get through this? So I have some thoughts on this, uh, maybe to start off, we have some so-called functional tests in DashJS. Um, these are tests that run automatically uh, at least once a week, where we actually try to also test specific stuff on different devices. Um, so I was talking about smart TVs and from my understanding or my experience, uh, smart TVs are really a very good example of device fragmentation. Uh, so you have especially the old smart TVs, um, I mentioned 2017, compared to the new smart TVs, where you have might have totally different versions of certain APIs. So I still think we need real hardware to test on to make sure that we really address all of the different variations of APIs and the different streaming formats. What I think we are on a good way um, when it comes to, let's say, um, do HLS and dash streaming in the most compliant manner. And um, I think uh, one important key aspect here is uh, so-called CMAF, Color Media Application Format, where you have like a single container format that you can use for HLS and for DAS streaming. It's based on fragmented MP4, but um, in the end, uh, when you have these different kind of devices, let's say Apple devices where you need to use HLS and other devices where you want to use DASH, you ideally package your content only once it was a CMAF format, and then you provide different manifest files, one HLS manifest file, one dash manifest file, and you basically reach all of the platforms. So that's the ideal, that's the dream scenario. Um, it gets a bit more complicated when it comes to adding DRM, digital rights management on top, mentioning different encryption schemes, CBCS, CNC. So that's where things become a bit messy uh, again, but um, we are also trying to align here. So um, going into a specific direction when it comes to DRM encryption, so that we really make new devices compliant with uh, the main two streaming formats, HLS and Dash, um, and having a single container format and a single encryption scheme. Uh, when talking about Dash JS specifically, we obviously try to support the latest advances when it comes to, to streaming. Um, so we mentioned CMAF, um, there's CMAF for latency streaming. Currently also uh, ad insertion plays a bigger role when it comes to OTT streaming. Um, so you have these companies, I think I quite recently read that also Disney wants to um, add an ad tier um, next to their classic subscriber beauty. Um, so it's an interesting topic, I think. Um, but uh, I, I would still say that we really need physical devices to test on to make sure that we really cover all of the different um, aspects a player need to handle. I think in general, the fact that you have a Dash player that is open source and highly compliant is in itself a big step in solving the fragmentation issue because there is a strong motivation by companies uh, to use it, you know, because it is stable, it is compliant. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that it's already used uh, in production. So, you know, I think that in itself is, is something that, that can help the issue which Mark described. Yeah, maybe to add one thing here. Um, what I'm seeing when I'm developing Dash shares and also um, looking at issues or, or questions from the community, uh, from my experience, um, there are a lot of cases where people actually create wrong content. Um, so there can be some mistakes in the MPD, maybe even some uh, non-valid media segments. Um, so I, I want to say at least in over 50% of the cases, it's really not, not a player fault, but rather a content fault. 
And I think having something like Dash.js really is also beneficial for, for content creators and um, also to, to check if your content really works on a player that is standard compliant. Um, so you can always use Dash.js, you can use the hosted version of the player, just plug in your content and see what happens. And that really gives you a good, um, yeah, good borderline in order to compare if, if you're doing the right thing or if there's maybe also something wrong with your content. Yeah, so it acts as a reference implementation of a player, and then you can test your content uh, against that player to see that uh, everything works as expected. Exactly. So what's next on, on your plate, on your roadmap for, uh, for Dash.js? Because I understand this is a evolving uh, project, very dynamic. And, you know, in the last episode, we reviewed with um, Nicola some of the aspects of streaming and there are so many you know you want to do encryption you need to support caching you want to do low latency and for each one of those you know there's a specific standard or sometimes several standards so what's next in the roadmap for you and there are really a lot of topics that are interesting um, maybe to also catch up a bit on what we did recently um, one thing I wanted to talk about was uh, MPD patching um, so for everyone who has done live streaming with Dash, um, you know that um, a Dash client typically fetches the manifest multiple times. So um, you fetch it at playback start, and then you do that again and again uh, in order to get, um, for instance, references to new segments. The crucial thing here is that a lot of the MPD updates a client is doing, they do not contain a lot of new information. Um, so if you're talking about Dash specific uh, segment timelines, for instance, um, there might even just be one reference added to the MPD, but the rest of the MPD stays the same. And um, that really creates a lot of overhead, um, especially on the client side. Um, if you think of old devices, Chromecasts, um, for instance, um, where you usually have low computational power and you send a big XML document to the client that then gets passed on the client side. and um, or the models of the of the client gets updated. Um, this can take a lot of time, uh, even let's say two to three seconds in the worst case. And um, if you do that frequently, that's also some way to um, yeah crash your client um, because it needs to handle lot large manifest files. And uh, something uh, which was actually added some time ago to Dash.js is the so-called patching mechanism, where we really focus on the uh, relevant parts of the manifest update. So you signal the complete MPD once, and then you only provide patch manifests, um, telling the, the client exactly, this has changed, this needs to be added, and maybe an item needs to be removed. And that way you keep the, the manifest very small, you provide only necessary updates to the client, and um, that's a great improvement. And um, this will be part of the, the Dash specification version five, and we already have support for this in Dash.js, so um, that's also great about Dash.js. We get access to the specifications very early on, and we do some kind of reference implementation. And then you can maybe also provide very valuable feedback to the guys writing the specifications, and also telling them this works very well on your specification, but um, you might need to adjust something here in order to make it fully compliant or even better for existing implementations. That sounds great. Is that reverse compatible to all devices or are there some device limitations? That's actually a new tag in the MPD. It's called patch location, but it should be backwards compatible because, you know, if the client is not recognizing that option, it just keeps on um, updating the manifest in, in a standard way. But all clients that support this patching mechanism, they can use that patch location and make use of this new feature. So I think that that's a great addition to the player. And we have this implementation 
Uh, we have unit tests in place, but what we are missing are really server-side implementations of that because this is really new. Uh, no one has adopted that yet. Um, and I talked to, to some guys in Dash IF and um, we don't actually have a test stream for this at this point. So we are completely relying on our unit tests and our existing implementation, but we cannot really verify that, you know, and um, would be great to see maybe if, if people hear the podcast, if you have an existing implementation of that, very happy to to check that out in Dash chat. Yeah, we'll put your contact uh, details in the... Uh... In the show notes and uh, you'll just be uh, overwhelmed by the amount of input that you get hopefully <laughs> hopefully yes <laughs> hopefully yes i think it's important that uh, people writing specifications and documents they get frequent uh, feedback from developers because they might not be aware of certain limitations on certain platforms um, something that might not work the way they expected so I think it's great to have this kind of feedback loop uh, from the guys writing specifications, but also from people doing the development. So if they interact with each other, that's that's great, I think. Right. And, and having a reference implementation that follows the spec very closely, sometimes even before a spec is officially published, you already have an implementation for that. And then you can test and give feedback to the uh, spec developers. I think that's awesome. Um, maybe going back to, to Mark's question, so what's next in Dash Chess? So we also had large improvements when it comes to multi-period playback. Um, so multi-period is like really a key technique in order to do head insertion. Um, and for a long time, this was, let's say, very buggy in Dash Chess uh, before version 4 of the client. And uh, we spent a lot of time working on this, improving the stability. So, um, yeah, I can only encourage everyone who was using Dash JS before, maybe ran into issues with multi-period playback um, to check out uh, what we did in the last versions. Two things uh, I also want to mention here. Um, we talked about SEMA flow latency streaming briefly. So this um, is always ongoing work. Uh, we want to, for instance, improve the ABR algorithms we have, although they are quite good um, right now, but uh, there's always room for improvement. And um, maybe you guys also heard about common media client data. Um, that's something that was specified in CTA Wave. And um, the idea is quite simple. So a client sends certain metrics during playback to a CDN. And the CDN then can use these metrics in order to do, for instance, log analysis, um, prioritize certain clients, or also cross-correlate uh, certain or specific problems uh, with specific devices and platforms. I think improving the edge caching is also one benefit of, of common media client data. And uh, from what I know, DashJS was the first client, again, that implemented this specification. And um, common media client data is at least available on Akamai today. So this is standardizing things like, you know, uh, analytics, you know, companies like Conviva who had proprietary protocols and implementations, and now it's going to be standard? Yeah, um, you can think of it that way um, but it's um, so it's really currently a limited uh, number of metrics that are reported so um, it's not mainly used for um, let's say quality of service analysis later on there are also different tools for that mentioning for instance mpx and but um, this is really targeting specific metrics that are important for cdns and the example i really like is that um, you might have 10 streaming clients connected to the same cdn and maybe nine of these clients have a very large buffer, uh, so they are not um, running into an issue uh, in the future. But there might be a single client that has a very low buffer. And from a CDN perspective, if I correlate this information, I can prioritize the, the client with the low buffer 
and spend, let's say, most of my upload to deliver segments to that specific client faster than to the other clients. Um, one thing I want to highlight is the so-called producer reference time that really gives you more information uh, from the encoder and packager side. Um, so what you get from this is like uh, having a, an encoder time when a certain segment is created um, that is mapped to a certain presentation time in the media timeline and the corresponding uh, wall clock time. So that really helps on the client side um, to account for delays on the encoder side. Um, so if your latency is very small, but uh, you recognize that on the encoder side, there are some delays and it's maybe not encoded in real time for whatever reason, then you can slightly adjust your latency on the client side to not run into an empty buffer in the worst case. So that is something that would really be beneficial for low latency streaming. When you talk about low latency, yeah, you know, some people say low latency, generally they say ultra low latency if it's like 500 milliseconds. But, you know, um, Dora and I have found that it's very important to be specific <laughs> in this whole area of low latency. So are you talking about the 500 millisecond end-to-end -end use case or are you talking about the three to five second use case? Uh, good question. And I think there are various definitions, as you mentioned, for low latency streaming. Um, so personally, I feel low latency streaming should be in the in the area of like two to three seconds uh, when it comes to hand waving latency. So end to end latency. I think 500 milliseconds is not realistic. As soon as you have some kind of drop in the throughput delay on the encoder side, then you have an issue on the client side immediately. So the client needs some kind of buffer. And I have, I think two to three seconds is perfectly fine. Makes sense. And, and obviously 500 milliseconds is, the, is really the domain of WebRTC. Also another follow on question regarding low latency. So I'm just curious from your perspective, what's the predominant use case? Everybody talks about, uh, you know, the use case of, oh, I hate it when uh, I can hear my neighbor cheering and, uh, you know, and yet I haven't seen it yet on my television, you know, that kind of thing. I think it's very debatable about how real that use case is. But I'm just curious if you have some insights, you know, into kind of some real world applications and uh, also you know, it's a general observation, and I'm just wondering if you can validate this, that video workflows are generally migrating from, you know, we'll just say generically file-based to stream or real-time or live. Now, again, that doesn't have to mean WebRTC, you know, 100 millisecond end-to-end, 500 millisecond end-to-end, but can you give us some more insights, you know, into what you're seeing, hearing, yeah, sure. Um, so regarding your first question, I think uh, the, the example you mentioned, that's immediately what also popped into my head. Um, so talking about our customers, um, this topic really comes up every time there's a football cup or a football European championship. Um, then they are all trying to reduce the latency and there are even newspaper articles comparing the latency of the different streaming providers in, in Germany. So when there is no football games on or there's no World Cup coming up, um, I think one example I like for low latency streaming is really the interaction between um, the chat and um, someone that is providing content. And I think Twitch is a really good example here. So um, you have Twitch streamers uh, trying to interact with their chat. And um, if you keep the latency low, then you can immediately respond to, to someone, someone uh, saying something in the chat. If that's too high, 
and um, I would consider maybe I don't know, 10 seconds too high, for instance, then this, this flow is not really working. So people are asking questions in the chat, maybe commenting on certain situations if the streamer is playing a certain game. But this is already outdated once the streamer sees that um, or comments that, and that's visible to the viewer then. Um, so I think that's a good example, and sports betting can also be a good example, I guess. Uh, apart from that, um, out of the box, um, I cannot think of anything else. Around live streaming, there could be a social uh, activity, social community. For example, it's not the neighbor that you're hearing, but you're watching the game with friends and they're not next to you, they're in another place, but you're talking, you're chatting on, on WhatsApp or Messenger or something like that. And then, you know, they, they give you an update on something that you haven't heard. And there's also the use case of Twitter, which is really real time, you know, a few seconds and, you know, maybe you, you saw the goal on Twitter before you saw it on TV, and that can be frustrating. You know, my daughter came to me a few months ago. There was the final of some reality show, and she came to me and she says, well, which service provider are we using? And, you know, she never asked about it before. And I said, why? Well, she said, my friends in the WhatsApp group, you know, we're watching the finals, and they're saying, yeah, he won, he won. He's still singing. <laughs> what, what's happening here? Okay, so it is, I guess, a, a real problem. You have you have trained your kids well that they even knew the question to yeah. ask. For. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> think think about that. You know, they knew it was related to the provider and not something wrong with their TV That's or right. yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Rather than like, Dad, there's something wrong with our TV. You know, TV, no, yeah. she, she knew there's nothing wrong with the TV. <laughs> so um, you mentioned uh, uh, Daniel that uh, you were also active in in five G Mag was one of the users of, of Dask.js. So can you give us uh, more background on this um, on this group? So maybe to introduce also 5G Mac quickly, um, it's kind of a similar model to what is done in Dash AF. So there are different stakeholders involved uh, of different sectors, um, let's say content providers, service providers, and network operators. And they're trying to define use cases uh, within the 5G media ecosystem. They are also looking into specifications and um, if you ever looked into into 5G or um, let's say mobile communications in general, there are so many specifications and um, even people who have been there for years, um, they need to figure out where to look for specific things. So this can get really, um, I don't want to say messy, but really complicated um, if, you, if you're looking into this. And one thing 5G Mac is also looking into are uh, reference implementations. So kind of similar what what we are doing in DeskJS. But for the use case of streaming over 5G networks? Exactly. So um, we started this 5G Mac reference tools activities in July 21. And uh, we are focusing on, on two specific use cases. The first one is 5G media streaming. And um, the second one, which is um, 5G broadcast. And um, to give a little bit of background here again, um, so there's still demand for actually broadcasting content. And if you think about 5G, you have the infrastructure in place. Um, so you have the, the radio access networks, you have the core components. And um, I think a great thing is really mixing broadcast and unicast delivery. So um, think about sport events, news shows. Um, if a lot of people are actually watching the same content, there's no need for them to use their mobile data plans and waste all their bandwidth in delivering a unicast stream coming from the CDN. So for specific shows or streams that a lot of people are watching, you could broadcast that content like you do today with TV. 
15, 20 years ago, that was called uh, DVB-H. It was uh, another frequency for broadcasting uh, television to mobile devices. But here you're talking about broadcasting on the same 5G frequencies, right? Yeah, so uh, dedicated uh, 5G components, or at least or even the same 5G components, um, that are broadcasting or using the broadcasting uh, capacity, the, the cell capacity to broadcast content, uh, even to devices that might not even have like a, a subscription plan that are not connected to any mobile um, operator and which are only operating in like, you call it receive only mode. Um, so you don't even need a SIM card in order to access these broadcast streams. And there was actually at the uh, Mobile World Congress, there was an end-to-end -end demo showing that with ORS involved, uh, Rode and Schwarz and Qualcomm. And um, this is one of the use cases 5G Mac is focusing on. So they want to provide some kind of reference implementation in order to enable this 5G broadcast. And um, as I said, we started this pretty recently. So in July 21, uh, based on some components uh, provided by the Austrian Broadcasting Service, and we open sourced this immediately. Um, so it's again available on GitHub and um, maybe to give you an idea how this works. Currently, we are focusing again on the client side, um, but also working in parallel on a real transmitter um, to have this end-to-end -end demo available. But um, to simplify it a bit, um, on, on the client side, we are receiving such a 5G broadcast. We are converting that uh, in a component which we call MBMS modem. And the modem part really um, kind of reflects the, the user entity. So that's what the, what the smartphone would do. And um, the outcome of the MBMS modem is, is a UDP multicast um, that then gets picked up by a component which we call middleware. And the middleware uses multicast, um, extracts the dash and HLS segments, puts them on a local cache and provides them to a third party application. And then uh, at this point, we can use dash.js again, because um, at this point, it's a unicast again. Uh, it's a local cache, a local web server that hosts all the components, uh, sorry, all the, all the segments and all the manifests. And um, that way you can kind of play a multicast stream in Dash.js, although there's no multicast support in browser-based environments usually. Interesting. So the middleware takes the broadcast signal and internally inside the device sends it as unicast to the player. Exactly. Um, so the, the segments and the manifest files are hosted on, on a local server and then provided to the player. And I think another important uh, use case here is that um, you could do some kind of mixture between broadcast and unicast. So you could, for instance, provide the main content via broadcast, and then you could add personalized advertisements as unicast in the stream. And all the manifest manipulation that is required in order to add these uh, unicast ads um, is done in the middleware, is done on the device itself, and it's not visible to the player. This seems super powerful. You're able to broadcast um, simultaneously Again, without having to create a one-to-one -one session, you know, so unicast, uh, that, that's amazing. A ton of advantage to that and a lot of reasons why people would want to do that. At the same time, you can insert, like you said, the, um, uh, you know, dynamic ad insertion and, and there I can uh, still get the benefit of having, you know, personalized advertising or there can be that personalized component. That's amazing. So is this real <laughs> or is it, is it still theory and, and where is it on the continuum? Because it's also a very fair answer to say, Hey, this isn't being deployed yet. It's still being, but it's coming. So where are we at on the uh, deployment continuum? That's a really good question. Um, 
So I, I talked about this end-to-end -end demo at MWC. Um, so this was really limited to a specific Qualcomm chipset, and I'm not aware of any other demo for now um, that really has this end-to-end -end flow in place. Um, I can definitely uh, refer to the to the 5G Mac activities here because the real 5G experts are sitting in this uh, uh, in the 5G Mac reference tools and also 5G Mac calls. Um, but I want to say that there's not a deployed scenario or deployed uh, implementation out there right now, but we are getting there. And um, having some kind of reference tool, I think, um, greatly helps uh, with this aspect. But this requires uh, custom silicon, is what you're saying. Yeah, at least for the reception of the broadcast. So you want to be compliant to, I think it's called release 16 uh, of the CGPP specs. And there's also this weird name. I, I didn't mention that yet, but um, we call it LTE-based 5G terrestrial broadcast. And um, when I first, first read this name, I mean, there's LTE in there and there's 5G in there. So that can be confusing. So it's, it's 5G protocols on, on LTE infrastructure? Yeah, that, that goes in the right direction. So it's really LTE-based infrastructure, LTE-based core networks, and also radio access networks. But everything onwards from release 15 is usually referred to as 5G. And there are some um, additions to release 15 and release 16 that uh, are built on top of the existing infrastructure that uh, was built in release 14. Um, so the 5G part is really coming from the fact that you have specific um, additions to the specification in release 16, for instance, but you're still relying on an LTE-based um, infrastructure. Is this supported by Apple on the iPhone? Oh, that, that's, that's a really good question that, that I can actually not <laughs> Sorry answer. to drop a bomb in the middle of, of all the enthusiasm, but... <laughs> I think they do have 5G phones, right? But this is an advanced 5G spec that has not been implemented yet. I cannot give an answer to that, but uh, my guess is no, it's not yet supported. Yeah, but definitely something to look forward to. Definitely. And maybe to add another use case here, it's not only ad insertion. Uh, we are talking a lot about ads, but um, if you think about additional languages, for instance, delivering um, maybe English as the main language to 90% of the users, but still giving them the opportunity to get like a Spanish language via Unicast or even different uh, viewports. So if you have a 360 stream or you, you, you stream a sport event from different angles, then you have like a main angle being broadcasted and you have the additional angles being made available as, as a Unicast. Yeah, nice. Okay, um, Daniel, we covered a lot of ground uh, today. And it was really interesting to hear all the latest about uh, MPEG Dash, Dash IF, Dash JS, and uh, finally 5G Mag. Uh, so we'd like uh, to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It was really great. Great. Thank you guys uh, for inviting me. I just want to mention that we are having a face-to-face -face again uh, for the Dash JS development uh, that's co-located with our Media Web Symposium in Berlin. So I would like to invite, of, of course, you guys and also all of the listeners to join us in Berlin from, from 20th to 24th of June. And um, I also want to maybe thank a few people because um, there are a lot of people um, who are doing a lot of great work. Um, Stefan Farm and, and the whole Fraunhofer team, uh, the guys from Dash IF, Thomas Stockhammer, Willow, Iraj Sudaga, Ali Bing, and also Nicola Weil. And um, the Dash JS community, but also the 5G Mac community. So I'm um, talking about 5G Mac, uh, Jordi, Johan, Klaus, and uh, again, Thomas Stockhammer. So um, I think these guys are doing great work. Um, so it's really nice to work together with them and improve what we, what we already have. 
lot of people doing a lot of uh, very important and uh, exciting work out there. So, and that's that. That's what this podcast is all about. The Video Insiders. That's right. Yeah. So, Daniel, again, uh, thank you for joining. Uh, this was a great conversation. And until we can meet again in real life, IRL, uh, what do we say, Drawer? Happy encoding. Happy encoding, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.